land, Richard spread his arms. We do not fight for land. We are loyal to an ideal, an ideal of liberty wherever man lives. We do not guard territory, bleed for a piece of dirt. We don't fight because we love violence. We fight for our freedom as individuals to live our own lives, to pursue our own survival, our own happiness. Your unconditional rejection of violence makes you smugly think of yourselves as noble, as enlightened, but in reality is nothing less than an abject moral capitulation to evil. Unconditional rejection of self-defense because you think it's a supposed surrender to violence leaves you no resort but begging for mercy or offering appeasement. Evil grants no mercy, and to attempt to appease it is nothing more than a piecemeal surrender to it. Surrender to evil is slavery at best, death at worst. Thus, your unconditional rejection of violence is really nothing more than embracing death as preferable to life. You will achieve what you embrace. The right, the absolute necessity of vengeance against anyone who initiates force against you is fundamental to survival. The morality of a people's defense of each individual's right to life. It's an intolerance to violence made real by an unwavering willingness to crush anyone who would launch violence against you. The unconditional determination to destroy any who would initiate force against you is an exaltation of the value of life. Refusing to surrender your life to any thug or tyrant who lays claim to it is in fact embracing life itself. If you are unwilling to defend your right to your own lives, then you are merely like mice trying to argue with owls. You think their ways are wrong. They think you are dinner. You've been listening to best-selling author Terry Goodkind reading from his latest novel, Naked Empire. My name is Rick Kleffel, and welcome to the show. Terry's first novel, Wizard's First Rule, published in 1994, was a huge hit in the beginning of the Sword of Truth series. His novels offer big-screen swashbuckling adventure combined with thought-provoking politics and philosophy. Welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So... One day you just decided to sit down and write a fantasy saga over 10,000 pages long and counting, plop it on the bestseller list, put a few logs on the fire, ready yeah. to go. Yeah, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've, ever since I was little, I've always wanted to be an author. It's been my most sacred and noble ambition. And because I have dyslexia, I have a hard time reading and a hard time with English in school. And so I didn't think that it was something I could attain. I thought it was beyond my... Uh, grasp, but it was always something I harbored that desire to to do. And uh, eventually, when I was 45, I decided if I was going to uh, ever try it, the time was ripe and I had to try it. So I set out and uh, started writing Wizard's First Rule. I uh, uh, wrote it over a period of about 13 months, and when I finished Wizard's First Rule, I wrote a letter to the best agent in the country. He was intrigued by the letter and asked to see the manuscript. He set his other reading aside. I think he said he had 20,000 pages of reading to do, but he was intrigued enough that he set it aside and read Wizard's First Rule and loved it and wanted to take me on as a client, and he showed it to three publishers. They all wanted it, so they held an auction, and 10 weeks after I wrote the end, it sold for a record price that still stands to this day. Wow. Tell our listeners the Wizard's First Rule, why you think it's so important to understand this rule, and why you chose heroic fantasy as a way to speak to a huge audience. Well, The Wizard's First Rule, taken out of context, to a certain degree, um, loses some of its meaning because a lot of its meaning is in the explanation that surrounds this nugget of, of, of The Wizard's First Rule. And the Wizard's First Rule is 
people are stupid. They will believe anything, either because they want to believe it's true or because they're afraid it's true. And uh, it has to do with how gullible people are and the different ways that people are gullible. So that's the core of Wizard's First Rule. Why did you choose fantasy and heroic fantasy as a way to address a huge audience? It has to do with my basic philosophy. And in, in general, um, I think that books have an extremely valuable purpose. And that purpose is to show us values realized. Uh, the successful pursuit of values is essential to life. The bird that catches the worm survives to live in, uh, another day. So human beings are no less creatures who have to survive than the bird is. And in order to survive, we have to achieve values to our life. Those values to our life are food and shelter, things like that. And I, that's the kind of values I'm talking about. And the way human beings achieve values is different than any other creature. Human beings use their mind to achieve values. They have to learn how to do things, and then they have to think how they're going to accomplish those things. Uh, for shelter, they don't just crawl under a rock. They live in a house. They have to learn how to build a house. They have to learn about architecture and, and engineering and construction and all those things in order to build a house. They use causality to achieve goals. Other creatures don't do this. Um, the value of a good novel is to show human beings those abstract principles of life being achieved in concrete ways. Through a story, people are seeing values being achieved. Now, one of the problems with uh, literature today, as in um, movies and TV and a, and a lot of areas of life, is that uh, there are people presenting views of life in which they are turning away from values. Um, let me give you an example. There was a there was a book review. Um, on, and I won't mention the book, but there was a book review I heard on NPR one time from driving down the street about a drug dealer who decided to uh, get rid of the middleman and go to Southeast Asia and import his own drugs so that he could make more money. And he enlisted the help of his stripper girlfriend to help him import these drugs to sell. And along the way, he ran into all kinds of trouble and mob trouble and bad guy trouble and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, it was a book of all of his woes in, in his struggle to import drugs. And at the end of the review, the reviewer said, this is a book about a noble soul in trouble. <laughs> I, I consider that an evil concept. And the purpose of, of presenting something in a book is to present normative values. And a normative value shows someone how you should live your life. That's why uh, teenage girls cut their hair like, a favorite movie star or why boys dress like you know their favorite uh, uh, sports figure they're seeing normative value and they're imitating it this ability of human beings to imitate successful behavior is how they achieve values how they achieve their goals so the purpose of a novel of a good novel should be to present worthwhile values being achieved and I think that that's best accomplished through the use of heroes um, heroes show us somebody worth living up to, uh, somebody other than a drug dealer successfully importing heroin. Um, so I want to present those kind of stories in which noble individuals are pursuing 
uh, noble values in life, to perpetuate values, uh, uh, stories about people who are embracing life in, in all of its glory, uh, people worthy of living up to. Um, I get letters from young people who say things like, I live in a world of drugs and violence, and I often don't know what to do. I don't know what the right thing to do is. Since I've read your books, I ask myself, what would Richard do? Richard is the main character in my stories. I just, the piece I read was Richard speaking. Now, they aren't able to articulate the reasons why they choose those values, but they are able to understand through Richard's sense of life the nobility of that individual, and they want to emulate that. So they can understand um, a, a person's correct way of approaching life through seeing heroes. Um, science fiction and fantasy are an interesting example of this. Um, science fiction as literature is a dead genre. We'll it, have more to say about that later, well, too. Well, <laughs> uh, okay, good. Science fiction is a dead genre, and it wasn't a genre that was killed off by the readers. Science fiction is a genre that committed suicide. Now, the, while the thing I'm going to tell you next, there are examples that... Uh, will go counter to this, but in general, science fiction is a genre that presents a view of mankind as his own worst enemy. He shows him as his own destroyer, as a, um, a creature whose own mind is going to be his own doom. And this is anti-life. And people are sick and tired of reading this kind of notion because what it is, is this is the Dark Ages view of mankind, as ineffective, as crippled, as ulcerous, as evil, as sinful, uh, as doomed, and as only salvation is in another world. And that's the view that science fiction presents to people, is this view of mankind as evil. I, I saw an ad, ad on uh, a TV for a science fiction movie, which I won't name, and it said, uh, this is a story about mankind's inherent evil. Well. I don't believe mankind is inherently evil. I think that many people do evil things and they can embrace evil philosophies, but I believe in mankind as a heroic being. Now, fantasy, on the other hand, despite all of the cliches, and I have to say, fantasy is a genre that um, has a reputation as cliched tripe, and fantasy has earned that reputation honestly. <laughs> yes, it has. Yes, it has. And, uh, uh, I actually don't like the genre of, of fantasy, but... The one redeeming feature that fantasy does have is it's a, a genre that embraces heroes. And that's something about fantasy that, that has always fascinated me. Now, um, I'm categorized as fantasy, and the question you asked was why I chose to write in fantasy, but uh, I don't think of myself as a fantasy writer. The books I write are about uh, romance, they're about adventure, they're about uh, mystery, they're about um, problem solving, they're about... Uh, philosophy, they're about uh, noble ideals, and they're also in part about fantasy. The fantasy is only one of those many elements. So I don't really consider myself a fantasy writer because the things that I do are so unlike a typical fantasy. My agent tells me, for example, that in fantasy, violating the rules of the fantasy genre is sure death, and people do not survive after violating the rules even once. But one of the reasons I'm successful is because people enjoy seeing how badly I'm going to violate the rules next. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, um, your novels are full of ideas, but they're not subtle. Oh, me be, not be subtle? <laughs> <laughs> Did you find that the adventure stories of heroic fantasy required a heavy-handed 
philosophical background, or did your strong philosophy in politics require a widescreen and bigger-than-life heroes to accommodate them? Um, the reason my novels aren't, novels aren't subtle is because I believe that the issues I'm dealing with are life and death in our lives. They're to do with a philosophy that uh, um, is central to our existence, and I'm very passionate about those ideas, and uh, I don't think there's any place for subtlety in a battle of life and death. Uh, this is a, this is a struggle of uh, of survival for mankind. What I'm portraying in these books is uh, the cusp of a civilization that on one the one side is balanced uh, on this cusp. On one side is the Dark Ages, and on the other side is the Renaissance. And which way these people will go depends on the philosophy that they choose to embrace, the philosophy of, of viewing mankind as uh, immoral, decrepit, and evil, and his mind is his own undoing, or the view of mankind as uh, efficacious and noble and able to rise up and achieve values. Um, in, in our world today, you know, the, the central philosophical struggle in the world today is over the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. Kant was an 18th century philosopher, and all philosophy that is taught in universities and filters down through our culture are variations of Kantian philosophy. And uh, Kantian philosophy is, uh, says that our senses are inadequate to reveal reality to us that they deceive us and we can't know what true reality is. It's a rejection of the human mind actually. So since we can't know what reality is, we can't know what good and evil is. We can't know good from bad and therefore it's wrong for us to judge. We can't make moral judgments because all cultures and all people are morally equivalent. There is no such thing as right and wrong. That's a concept beyond our world. So because there's no right and wrong, and because all cultures are morally equivalent, everything must be viewed the same. And you see the hilarious side of this when you watch the evening news, and you see someone, uh, you, you see the three talking heads presenting a press conference during the Iraq war with General Brooks on one side, and then they show with equal credibility, as far as they're concerned, a press conference with Baghdad Bob. Now, the audience is, thinks this is hilarious, and the news media are kind of miffed because they want this to be morally equivalent, but the audience knows it isn't morally equivalent, and the audience sees, sees the hilarity in it. Um, that's the struggle, and, and it's, it's uh, funny when you see it in, in that venue, but it gets, it gets frightening when you see news people brought before Congress and grilled by congressmen who accuse them of the crime of rep in their uh, reporting of being pro-American. So in other words, they are gripped by this Kantian view that we can't be better than anyone else. This is, this is an evil view. I, you know, this is a matter of life and death, and I don't know if our country's going to survive that kind of... Multiculturalism kind of, run rampant. Absolutely, and it's a, it's a destruction. It's a, it's a direct attack on values because it's saying that our values are no better than any other country's values. And I mean, look at, look at countries around the world that there are still slavery and savagery and butchery. And uh, to say that their culture is just as good as our culture is ludicrous. And I think most Americans realize that. But um, it still infects national policy. When you go to an airport and um, 
they are, because everyone is uh, morally equivalent, unable to uh, decide who might be a terrorist, so they're strip-searching 90-year-old grandmothers. Yeah, and, my 78-year-old mother-in-law yeah. was, was run through the metal detector a few times. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And they, they um, profile one-way tickets because one time a terrorist used a one-way ticket, and no one complained about a one-way ticket being profiled because a ticket's not going to talk for itself. So they profile objects. They declare war on tactics. The war on terrorism is an utter failure to recognize evil. Uh, it's an attempt to appease evil. The war on terrorism is a, is a war on a tactic. Imagine in World War II if we had declared war on poison gas chambers. And we said, oh, look, all these Jews are dying in gas chambers. We have to stop this. We're going to declare war on poison gas chambers. We're going to find the money of the people who have backed the gas chamber constructors, and we're going to find the poison gas importers, and we're going to stop them. Um, in World War II, we rightly declared war on Nazism because it's an evil philosophy that was trying to destroy us. But in this war, we're declaring war on a tactic, like we're saying we're going to outlaw the Blitzkrieg. Well, you can't declare war on a tactic. You must declare war on the philosophy that is using that tactic. And when people are trying to kill us, if we don't respond in the proper way, we will die, just like this piece I was reading you. you if you don't defend yourself, they're not going to pale at the task. Evil is not going to say, you know what, I think... Uh, we're going to stop being evil. We're going to stop saying we hate the United States. We're going to just let them go. We're not going to try to blow them up and kill them all. Well, they're not going to stop. Uh, these are evil people, and unless you realize that there's evil among you and go after it, it's going to continue to expand and grow among you, and you're going to live with it forever. So that's why I'm not subtle when I write about these things. <laughs> I, I, I believe tell. passionately in these kind of things. Now, Naked Empire contains three sets of political philosophical beliefs. The imperial order... The Bandicar and the Dharans. Dharans, yes. Dharans. The Imperial Order is really kind of fascinating combination of evils. It's reminiscent of both religious fundamentalism and Stalinist-style fascism with a socialist mask. Well, yes, because um, collectivism and uh, uh, theocracies really are two sides of the same coin. They're they're both um, the notion that the individual has no right to his own life; that either the state or the religion or the God owns that life, and that life is meaningless to that individual. Its only purpose is in sacrifice to the greater good. The um, um, belief of uh, the, the Daharans is led by Richard, which is this piece that I read in the beginning, is a belief in the power of, uh, or the right, the inherent right of the individual to exist. And the belief of the Bandicars um, is this Kantian philosophy that I was telling you about, it's where you can gone crazy. Yes, it, and and you know to write the kind of philosophy that has gripped the uh, intelligentsia of the United States to write that kind of philosophy in characters in a book is extremely difficult to do because when you put it down on paper, it looks ludicrous. And you, you say to yourself, "Well, no one is going to believe a character that believes this." You know, the the one of the characters in this book when he doesn't want to see evil, he's repeating to himself, "Nothing is real. Nothing is real. Nothing is real." because he's afraid of, to see this violence going on around him. And so he's refusing to believe that it's real. Well, when you read a character doing this kind of thing, it looks insane. And so it's, it's very difficult to write this kind of philosophy realistic uh, in order to stand in for this kind of Kantian uh, um, uh, belief structure. So uh, 
uh, I, I trust that, that I pulled it off and you, you enjoyed reading that part. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it was most inter- entertaining. And, and uh, somebody pointed out to me just a few minutes ago who just picked up the book and read about like one page that the Bandakar situation is very much like that of Tibet versus China. Sure. And, and the, uh, I've also had a place. I, I, yes. And I've also had it pointed out that it's whole, like a whole lot of other things. And, and uh, my agent, matter of fact, he read the manuscript and he said, well, people are going to think this is X. And the reason it looks like so many different things is because the principles that are driving these people are philosophical prin- principles that have been in existence in, in our world for thousands of years. The, the same philosophy of self-sacrifice and altruism has been driving nations for for hundreds if not thousands of years. In the last century, um, something in the neighborhood of 150 million individual human beings were murdered in an attempt to uphold that philosophy. And despite the fact that that many people died, suffered, uh, were tortured, and were, uh, you know, their families were wiped out, um, people still struggled for freedom because they know that this freedom of the individual to exist is fundamental to life. And embracing those kind of philosophies is death. And over and over and over throughout history, it keeps repeating itself because it's a philosophy that doesn't work. It sounds nice on the surface of it. They know we'll all work for the better good. We'll all help our fellow man. But when you sacrifice yourself to someone else, you lose your identity, you become a slave. This mixture this sort of mixture of philosophy and politics doesn't sit well with the critics, does it? Oh, oh no. I'm, I'm happy to report <laughs> that I'm despised and loathed by the critics, which is, a, I think, a litmus test to, to see if you're doing anything right. Because for the most part, the, the critical world, they're, um, they're gripped by, by twin fears. Number one is, is a fear of not being better than anyone else. And the other fear that grips them is the idea that anyone can be better than anyone else. And uh, the second of those two fears is the notion that, um, that there's anything wrong with this uh, moral equivalence. And the first of those two notions is they despise moral equivalence because they want to be better than everybody else. And when, it, when a critic uh, reviews a movie or a book or something, and this isn't true of all critics, there are critics who really are objective. And I have read criticisms of certain things that I've written that I thought were fair criticisms. You know, a certain part was boring or whatever. Um, but for the most part, a critic uh, views the world in this way. They say to themselves, okay, if all the bubbas out there in the world like this, I obviously can't agree with them or I'd be no better than you know, the average potato head out there. And, I, and I'm, you know, I'm a superior individual. I'm, I'm this intellectual superstar. So I can't now, agree with all these people out there. So I have to pan anything that's successful. So if it's successful, you know, it will obviously is tripe. And the converse of that is that if no one wants to read it, uh, then they say, well, they're just too stupid to know enough. And uh, I alone, in my intellectual wisdom and superior uh, grasp of art, am able to pick this gem out of all the mud. Okay. <laughs> As a critic, I might be, tend to disagree with that. <laughs> well, like I said, not all critics are that way. There mm-hmm. are people who are objective. And, and I... So Don't object to all the criticism I've had of, of things I've written because occasionally I'll do something that a critic will point out that uh, some flaw, and I, and I agree with them. And I, and I have um, uh, tried to improve. When I write, I always try to do the absolute best job I can do. So I think if you read from Wizard's First Rule to the latest book, Naked Empire, uh, 
you will see Terry learning how to write better because I'm always uh, trying to improve. And if people go back and say, well, there's clunky sentences in the first book, I agree with them. There is. And so uh, some criticism I think is legitimate. Your books are about the yeah, Now, wait a minute. Yeah, I'm sitting here with a critic. I'm in the same room with a critic and I'm yeah. not quite close enough to get my hands around your throat. <laughs> no. <laughs> Nor is the reverse true. <laughs> <laughs> We haven't had words about Frankenstein. Yet. Uh, <laughs> Your book, this book in particular, is about the danger of memes, of ideas. Can you extinguish an evil philosophy or segregate it into some place where it need not be dealt with? I mean, in World War II, as you pointed out, Americans went out of their way to kill Nazis, and they did a heck of a good job. Mm-hmm. But today, we find ourselves with American Nazis. But American Nazis don't control our country. Uh, you know, there there might be some debate about that as well. <laughs> well, when someone has an evil philosophy and they attack you, then you must be merciless in crushing that attack. You cannot compromise with evil. When evil chooses to kill you, you must extinguish it. Um, if someone wants to have evil ideas, I don't believe in going out and extinguishing evil ideas. Uh, the distinguishing characteristic of the human mind is free will. Um, we have a free will to choose to think or not to think, and to choose to think well or to uh, pick whims that we want to follow. Now, if someone chooses as their lifestyle uh, to drink beer, smoke cigarettes, and buy lottery tickets, I think that's kind of a waste of their life, but I don't believe that they should be executed for it. And if someone believes that, um, oh, let's say that uh, some other country wants to um, have state-owned business and that no one should be allowed to own their own business, I think that's an evil concept, but it's they're not attacking me. I, I don't believe in going over there and bombing the bejeebers out of them. So uh, I only believe in the use of force when someone initiates violence against you, as is, is in this piece I, I read you. There or, is, or is going to initiate violence against you. Th- that's an interesting concept. Now, there's a thick strain of Winston Churchill in this fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about the cycle of violence and the cycle of appeasement in Naked Empire? Well, I, I don't believe that there is such a thing as a cycle of violence. A cycle of violence is when you refuse to recognize the nature of evil and you refuse to crush those who are trying to kill you. Uh, Appeasing um, an enemy who is trying to kill you, giving him constantly more room to come at you, is why there is this thing known as a cycle of violence. In in the Mideast, there's this cycle of violence because um, the Israelis have been told by the United States government not to crush those who are trying to kill them. And this is an example of why we're not going to win the war on terrorism, because we don't have the moral will to decide to fight evil. And um, we're asking the Israelis to, to negotiate with murderers. And you cannot negotiate with someone who's trying to murder you. You simply have to destroy them. Wow. <laughs> That's absolutely true. But you could argue that from the other side, couldn't you? Well, but the Israelis don't go blowing up Palestinians. As long as the Palestinians continue to do that, the Israelis are under attack, and it's incumbent upon the Israelis to end the violence by ending the attacks. Now, a lot fewer people are going to be killed once the violence is is put down. As long as you allow the violence to continue, 
it's going to continue. As long as you allow people to be terrorists, they're going to continue to be terrorists. It's not going to stop. There is what you have to understand the mindset of these people who call themselves um, terrorists. Well, they, they, are, do, they are individuals making a choice, right? Yes, to kill you. <laughs> yes. And, and their, their goal is not to get, you know, 10 bucks or um, food for the next year or a piece of land. Their goal is that you do not exist. Their stated goal of the uh, Islamic fundamentalists is to destroy America. They don't want America, they want America either to be Islamic or dead. Now, that's their goal. What's to negotiate? They want to kill you. You know, where are you going to find, where are you going to say, well, maybe we could kill half the people or let's just kill Cincinnati and let the, would that be, would that satisfy you? You know, you, you can't, you can't appease those kind of people. You can't argue, you can't um, bargain with them. Once you b try to bargain with evil, once you let a burglar have a teaspoon, as Ayn Rand once said, then they have, every, then they have your life. And when you give legitimacy to a murderer by bargaining with him, then you are admitting that he has a moral right to murder you. And then you have no grounds to object when he does. No, you don't. <laughs> now, in your book, it features a lot of magic, or some magic. And sure. magic is the high tech of the fantasy genre. In this book, though, you do make a different uh, distinction between magic and mysticism. Absolutely. And, and this is one of the... Uh, points of demarcation between what I do and what typical fantasy does. Typical fantasy uses magic, as you said, as, as a mystical element. And I very forcefully um, make the point in, in the story that magic that we're talking about in this book is not mysticism, but a metaphysical reality. And being a metaphysical reality, it's an existent that functions with its own laws of identity. The problems of the characters are discovering those laws of identity, just like any three-year-old has to learn how a ball bounces to discover the qualities that a ball has or, or to discover how to work a spoon so it can feed itself. Um, uh, magic being a metaphysical reality has its own laws of identity and obeys those laws of identity. So in a way, it, um, it, it becomes non-magic. It, it almost becomes another thing in our world. And I, and I use magic metaphorically in three ways. The first way is I use it as a metaphor for technology. Um, there, are, there are some people who, who have these, these uh, books called journey books, and they can write in one journey book, and it appears in another journey book, so they can get messages back and forth. Well, so big deal. That's email. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so magic is a metaphor for technology. And in that respect, I don't like the way f fantasy books traditionally will go into all kinds of glorious explanations about the wonders of 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 the magic and, and, and I object to it on the same grounds that if I was meeting a detective novel and someone holds a 38 revolver to someone else's head I don't want an explanation of how a 38 revolver works I simply want to know what the person's thinking that's on either side of that gun so in the first and most simple instance magic is used as a metaphor for technology the second way magic is used, which is a, is a much more important way, is that being an existent and, and having its own laws of identity, magic is used metaphorically to represent the abilities of individuals. And some individuals have more ability than other individuals. And it's used as uh, um, this metaphor to show individuals willing to live up to their potential, 
willing individuals who striving to do all they can do and be the best they can be through the use of whatever abilities they do have. And the third uh, metaphorical use of magic is, as I mentioned before, in this struggle between the Dark Ages and Renaissance. It's In many ways, this is a, a series about man's emergence from the mysticism of a Dark Age in this world into a Renaissance of mankind. But in your world, magic is in decline, and that's a common theme in fantasy. It evokes a fear of the failure of reality itself. For example, in our world, we expect our car to work. Even if our car is broken, we know that cars in general work because the laws of physics and science are immutable. The failure of magic in your world is the equivalent to us discovering that the laws governing internal combustion no longer apply, at first to some and then eventually to all internal combustion engines, which stop running gradually. Right. But if all internal combustion engines quit running uh, because we didn't have any more gasoline, there would be a reason for it. And, and in this world, there's, there's a similar kind of mechanism going on. And it has to do with um, uh, the things I mentioned about people's willingness to live up to the potential that they have to being the, to being the best person they can. It also has to do with... Um, uh, magic is being systematically exterminated by people who don't want magic, people who want this dark age of mankind. In, in many ways today, you know, look around uh, uh, at the rejection of things produced by man um, and an embracing of the dark ages kind of notions of the way we should live, uh, asking us not to have things, to have less, to have inferior, to have none. Um, it's, it's a rejection of technology, and in that way it parallels our own rejection of technology. You know, the, the, the notion that um, we shouldn't use technology to build something bigger and better. We shouldn't use, uh, just because we have the mind and the ability, we shouldn't create something more for ourselves. And in, in many ways, that's what this is talking about in this book. You subject your magic to science with a program of what could be called eugenics, in which magic is being bred out of humanity, don't you? That's right. This is, this is the um, effort of these uh, uh, people from, from the old world who want this Dark Ages kind of brutality because they are thugs who, in that kind of world, could rule. And magic is an element that... Um, well, it helps them win what they're doing, but at the same time, it's, it's in opposition to what they're doing. So it prevents them from achieving the goal that they want, which is to uh, rule the world. You know, if you notice any, the, the thing about any kind of dictator, uh, whether it's Hitler or um, uh, Stalin or Pol Pot or Mao Zedong or um, our friend from Iraq, uh, Mr. Hussein. Mr. Hussein, yes. Uh, what do they have in common? They tell everyone that everyone is the same. You're all part of a cog in the machinery of society, and your job is to sacrifice to the greater good. You're just one small part of things. But at the same time, what do they all do? They all put their picture everywhere. They, they are living examples of fanatically trying to be individuals. And in... in um, to, to be different than everyone else and to have their face alone represented everywhere in their country. So uh, in, in many ways, this uh, character, Jagang, who's the head of the, 
the imperial order in the old world is much the same way in that he wants to rule the world. He's, he claims to be to have these noble goals of wanting a better world for mankind to live in in which everyone sacrifices for the greater good, but he wants to be the one who decides what the greater good is. You do describe a couple of memorable human monsters in this novel. Both, oh, you read about Nicholas the Slide. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Both Jagang the Dreamwalker and Nicholas the Slide the Soul Stealer. Now, these con- concepts of Dreamwalkers and Soul Stealers aren't exactly new. But could you talk about how you use action story prose, this contracting and expanding time that you do, to build compelling incarnations of these archetypes? Well, uh, the way I use characters is they're always there for a reason. I, you know, I, I don't put people in there unless they serve a valid purpose to the novel. And one of the things I always hated about fantasy and in other genres too is they they portray evil as this kind of floating dark shadow that's stealing into the room and i don't that doesn't scare me what scares me is people who actually believe that they're doing the right thing that's the worst examples in human history is you know adolf hitler believes that the jews had to be exterminated you know he wasn't doing it because he woke up and said you know i think i'm gonna be a bad guy and i'm gonna pick some people to exterminate. He actually believed what he said. And these people in this book um, use some of the mechanisms that are archetypal um, story elements from history, but they believe in what they do, and they have philosophy behind what they do. So the difference between what I'm doing and what's traditionally done is there would be a bad guy because he's bad and he just is born bad and he's just bad. The difference with what I do is that the bad guys have a cause and they're fighting for something and they're, you know, Jagang in the old world is trying to win this war for, for something he believes very powerfully in. Now I think he's very misguided in what he believes, but he believes very strongly in, in what he's fighting for. So that's a different way that I use characters and the same holds true for Richard. Uh, Richard believes very strongly in what he does, and he makes mistakes along the way, but he learns from his mistakes, and he corrects them with those mistakes. Richard is, is a, my ideal of an efficacious human being who, who is going about solving the tasks of how to live life, how to solve his problems, how to um, survive, and, and how to um, glory in the world around him. He, you know, he loves life, and he loves Kalen, and uh, wants to live in this beautiful world. Your novel makes use of a lot of horror fiction devices with some of your monsters. Really? Horror fiction devices? Give me an example. Uh, Well, when you uh, pull the... uh, um, When somebody is pulled into a tent and somebody else is uh, threatened with torture. There's a a scene that's fairly chilling partway through your your novel where... um, Thank you for that positive review. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that um, where people are tortured, or where people are threatened with torture. Yes, it's fairly disturbing. Yes. Um, where? How do you draw the line at what to show and what not to show? Because your novel seems very family friendly. There's no foul language. It's relatively chaste. Are you writing for a family audience? I'm writing for intelligent adults. Um, these books are not meant for children, and 
one of the reasons I use violence in the way I use it is because to truly understand the serious nature of what we're talking about and what kind of monsters we're talking about, you have to see them in action. You have to understand. Um, you know, the Saddam Hussein, for example, put people into shredding machines feet first because he enjoyed doing that. Uh, you have to see characters who do things like that in order to understand what a monster these people are. And when they are fighting for their cause, the kinds of crimes they're willing to do to have their way. Um, I think that when you see Richard fighting for what he believes in, it's necessary to understand what he's seen in the world, what shaped his character. I don't think that you can just say, you know, he saw um, some somebody dead and so he's going to go out on a crusade. You know, you have to understand that Richard has seen a lot of things, and as has Kalen, who's probably seen more than Richard. And they're very adamant about their beliefs because of these things they've seen. And you can't tell a reader, okay, Richard is going to go on this crusade for liberty and freedom because he believes in liberty and freedom. You have to show readers and let them make up their own mind what's the right uh, approach to solving the problem. And when Richard f fights against these people, I want readers to see why he fights against them instead of telling them why. So it's an effort for me to show the story rather than tell it. And part of that element is that war is not glorious. And, and I make that point over and over again. Matter of fact, in the second book, Kalen gave a speech when these uh, young recruits were going to go off and avenge their s people of their city who were tortured and slaughtered. And they thought that they were going to go off and... Uh, get the guys who did this. Um, Kaylin gives them a speech in which she tells them war is not about glory. War is about killing people. War is about uh, killing them as efficiently as possible. If you can kill them in your sleep, then they can't attack you. If you can kill them when they're eating, then they're holding a, a fork instead of a sword. And that's the purpose of showing this violence is to show, I mean, it's one of the purposes, is to show that this is not some glorious war between good and evil and you're going to join the army of the good and go marching off whistling a tune. This is a very grim task and it's um, only engaged upon for a very, very good reason and that's because your survival depends upon it. So I want the stakes understood. I, I'm a writer who writes about philosophically and metaphysically the stakes of life and death. So those stakes must be graphically displayed. And, you know, the other thing is, and I want to I make a point about this. In Wizard's First Rule, there was a, a minor little 40-page torture scene. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's now the infamous torture scene that's 40 pages long. Um, when I wrote that, my editor at the time, you know, I, I knew what I was doing, and I knew why I was doing it, and I knew how I was going to do it. My editor at the time says, Terry, this is too much violence and too much torture we've got to cut this way down and I said okay and he says what we're going to do is we're going to go through it line by line and we're going to cut out all of the really explicit torture and get rid of some of this stuff so it's not so gruesome and I said okay fine because I knew what, what was there obviously I wrote it so we went through the whole thing all 40 pages line by line by line and he was not able to cut out a single sentence 
And the <laughs> reason he wasn't able to cut out a single sentence is because that 40 pages of torture didn't have 40 pages of torture. It only had a page and a half telling what torture was happening out of that whole 40 pages. But the reason it seemed torturous, that whole 40 pages, is because it was near the end of the book. You were now had complete empathy with the main character of Richard. You were in Richard's mind. You were part of Richard. And Richard suddenly found, him in a, found himself in a place where he could not escape. He could not bargain his way out. He couldn't fight his way out. He couldn't buy his way out. Uh, and no amount of wishing was going to get him out of it. He was helpless. And I, what I was attempting to show, which I think I, I did, was the true terror of abuse is helplessness. It's not the torture, it's the helplessness. And there's 40 pages of helplessness, not 40 pages of torture. But it's torturous because it goes on for 40 pages of seeing someone you care very much about being totally and abjectly helpless. And that strips away someone's humanity because uh, the human will is very necessary to life. In Publishers Weekly, Judith Rosen reported that science fiction and fantasy represent nearly 10% of all trade books sold. But Jane Johnson, the former publisher of HarperCollins' genre line Voyager, has said that she wants to split... Pre present publisher. A present? Yes, she's my editor in England. Okay. <laughs> has said that she wants to split SF from fantasy in terms of how they're sold. This is on the basis of market research that says that 86% of mainstream book buyers have bought a fantasy novel in the past year. She wants to make the books look more like mainstream historical fiction and get them racked in the shops under fiction. How do you feel about that? Um, Jane Johnson and I are the only two people in the fa entire fantasy, oh, and my agent, the three of us, we're the only three people in the entire fantasy publishing business who have understood this concept. And for the last 10 years, Jane through HarperCollins and myself and my agent through Tor, my publisher, have been trying to convince publishers, fantasy publishers, of the reality of what's going on. There's a great deal of misconception. And uh, I've talked to Jane about that study and what they found out, and, and I'll, and I'll throw, shed some light on some more things that were discovered in that study. Uh, first of all, they discovered that the, um, what's the, what's the, the uh, conventional wisdom, that's what I'm trying to think of. The conventional wisdom is that young males read science fiction and young males read fantasy. In science fiction, this is true. Uh, the average science fiction reader is a young male. In, in uh, fantasy, it's completely untrue. Most fantasy readers do not classify themselves as fantasy readers. They classify themselves, as that study shows, as general fiction readers. Um, most of those readers passionately believe in the heroic. And the other thing that that study revealed is the reason they want one of the reasons they want their fantasy not racked into the science fiction fantasy section is because they don't want their fiction tainted by this science fiction concept of mankind is evil. They don't like their books being near the near the science fiction books. <laughs> they don't even want the proximity of no, that bad no, attitude. No, they don't want. They, it's 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 a repulsive notion to them of mankind is evil. They want they want heroes and well, they want certainly it repulsive elsewhere. book covers. <laughs> That's right. Um, the uh, stereotypical book covers is something they intensely dislike. This is something I've been uh, working with my publisher over the course of 10 years is this concept of um, altering the covers instead of giving these traditional cliched genre fantasy covers, which in fact drive readers away. We need to have covers on them that 
are for the true audience, intelligent adults. Now, we were talking about science fiction earlier, and this okay, is the bad attitude. Give it to me? No, no, no. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you. Do you dismiss Frankenstein? Which No, Frankenstein's just, a fantasy. Frankenstein's a fantasy. It's sure. all, It's also the origin of point of most science fiction, don't you think? Um, and it certainly, its hero pursues knowledge to his own doom. Well, I don't want to talk about Frankenstein because I don't, I don't know enough about it to uh-huh. be, I mean, I've seen the movie and I don't know enough about the book to be able to speak intelligently about it. But I think that there uh, there is a lot of noble science fiction. Um, I, I, when I was young, I loved reading science fiction and I loved reading uh, a lot of the ideas and to see mankind exploring the stars. Uh, and I think that uh, there's certainly science fiction writers who do believe in the nobility of mankind and are projecting mankind that way. I'm talking about the general um, way in which mankind is treated in science fiction. And this is the reason that science fiction is a dead genre in the bookstores. When you said that 10% of of all the books sold are fantasy and science fiction, um, something like 95% of that is fantasy. Science fiction is, is a genre that is just every year is... Um, selling less and less books and right now it's, it's selling hardly any. As a matter of fact um, one of the ways you can tell when a genre is dead is when Hollywood discovers it. And, <laughs> and Hollywood, well doesn't that mean fantasy is on its way to Absolutely. Uh, I think fantasy is, is um, I, my agent and I have discussed this and, and we think that I am personally the death knell of, of the fantasy genre. Um, okay, I, I think I, Terry Good is going <laughs> yes. to kill fantasy for us. Well, you know, in, in, in that you. respect, I mean that I have altered the notion of what fantasy is to the point where um, it opens it up to all kinds of other things. And the traditional fantasy, I think, has to change or it's going to just be silly. You know, people are just going to think, well, you know, they've read this story a hundred times, they don't want to read it anymore. So I think that fantasy has to grow and change. And, um, I've brought innovation to the genre with different kinds of stories that tell fantasy in a different way. And um, uh, in, in many ways, if you look at um, throughout, throughout history at any genre, that's, that's what happens is someone will do that, and that's sort of the end of that kind of thing. But your stuff also harkens back to the classics of Conan, sure. Robert E. Howard, um, even stuff more nihilistic and recent like Michael Moorcock. In his Elric stories, who who do you count as your inspirations in the world of fantasy? Do you have any or no? I don't read fantasy. I, I generally all the fantasy I've read, I I really just don't like it. Um, it's too simplistic. It's good against evil without any reason for good against evil. You know, I I have to see the reasoning behind it. Now, that's not to say I don't I don't I haven't read some fantasy or, or don't know something about. It. I've tried little bits here and there. Um, I, 30 years ago, I used to read Terry Brooks and enjoyed it very much. I, I liked his concept of, you know, heroes against uh, long odds and surviving and struggling and, and, and winning. You know, I liked those stories. Um, nowadays, uh, I don't read fantasy because, first of all, I don't have any time. I'm busy reading research for what I do. You know, for the last book, uh, Pillars of Creation, I had to do a lot of research on serial killers. The book before that, Faith of the Fallen, I did a lot of research on stone carving in the uh, Middle Ages, so that I, because it was about an individual who 
uh, carved a statue which created a revolution. Um, and, and that book embodied the sort of Renaissance idea that art, uh, as Ayn Rand says, um, art is the, um, let me see how did you put it, art is uh, the recreation of reality according to an artist's metaphysical value judgments. In other words, an artist always expresses through art what he believes about life. And if you look at people in the Middle Ages, the kind of art they had, they expressed this hatred of life and longing for some other life in another world. And the Renaissance was about man rising up, and you see that in his art, and that, that's what that book was about. So, um, I take it you read Anne Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand, yes. Yeah. Ayn Rand is my favorite author. Um, I consider her the greatest philosopher since Aristotle, and the concepts and philosophy that she developed are the equivalent of, uh, in physics, the unified field theory. Um, I think she's absolutely brilliant. Down with us mere mortals, I like uh, um, Dean Koontz. I really like his stories, too. So when I do have time to read, I read um, well, Dean Koontz, but mostly I'm reading research, or I read nonfiction by Ayn Rand. She wrote four novels, and uh, I've read those, so I read a lot of her nonfiction stuff. Now, your novels are long, but not as long as a lot of genre fiction series novels. How do you as a writer know when you've begun to bloat? Oh, because um, when you read a page, it might take you, I don't know, how long do you think it takes you to read a page in a book? I couldn't even hazard a guess. Okay, so like say two or three, say, say three or four minutes it takes you to read a page, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it takes me three or four hours to write a page. So if you're bored for <laughs> three or four minutes, I'm bored for three or four hours. <laughs> okay. And well, let, me, let me tell you, it's, it's, uh, it's really boring to pad books. I mean, it's, it's unendurable boredom. It's the worst thing in the world. I couldn't possibly do it. I write because I'm excited about the story I'm telling, and I love telling this story, and I get really wrapped up in it. And I'm in that world, and I'm, I'm with the characters, and it's, it's a vital a life-affirming experience, and you know, um, I see what they see and hear what they hear and and feel what they feel, and it's magical in, in a way. You know, you've passed through this curtain into this other world, and to go there and walk around and pad would just be agony. I couldn't possibly do that. <laughs> Does this story have an ending already? Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> do you know it? Yeah, I'm not going to tell you today, but. Um, the way I write fantasy is that uh, this is a series and... Of how many books? Of um, There's going to be one less than too many. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of series out there that have got way more than too many, and I don't want to write a series like that. But more importantly, it comes down to my philosophy. And my philosophy, is I, was, I described to you before, about the purpose of a good book. In that purpose... Uh, you are you are um, referencing the essential um, human ability to think, and and in that process of thinking is logic, and there has to be a conclusion in the story. The story has to have an ending. So the major conflict in each one of my books has a resolution. So when you pick up a book, you don't have to start with. The, I mean, it's better to start with the first book because it's a linear kind of world, but. You don't. You could pick up Naked Empire without having read any of my previous books, and as I did, okay. and I did. Okay, well, that's great to know. Um, the last book that I wrote, Pillars of Creation, had a dual plot, and by that I mean that depending on what you knew, 
you interpreted the plot differently. So people who already knew the characters had one um, set of fears, and the people who hadn't read the books before had a completely different set of fears, and they, and they were in opposition. And so you had two different kinds of readers cheering for sort of the opposite thing to happen, and throughout the book those plots eventually meshed. But I write each book like that so that you can read it as a standalone novel. However, the whole series has a story arc that goes through the whole series, and there's a background story of the battle for the future of this world. And that story, that background arc story, will have a conclusion, and I know the conclusion, and, and that will be an ending not only that particular book, but it will be the ending of the whole the whole series. So I, I, I'm doing kind of a multi-leveled story in which the major story is the story in each book, but there's that ongoing background story which will eventually conclude. Now I have one last question for you. Okay. When you finish the series and you've killed off the fantasy genre, <laughs> will you write another <laughs> fantasy series? I have a lot of things I like to do. Um, in I, I don't know for sure if I'm going to write another fantasy series. I may decide to write another book about different periods in this world. Um, there's a, a lot of stories I would like to tell. There's stories of the background of Zed, and there's the stories of the Great War, you know, thousands of years ago. There's a lot of really fascinating details that, in my mind, I know about, but I haven't put them down on paper because there's no place in that book to put them down. I would Then I would be padding, as we discussed before. And I don't put those things in. Even though I know those details, I leave them out because they're not relevant to the story at that time. Um, but also there are limitations to the world of, to, to the fantasy novel. Um, one of the limitations is a practical marketing limitation, and that is that if the book is um, classified as fantasy, if, if the publisher is a fantasy publisher, it's automatically classified as fantasy. I could write a story about um, somebody working on a Buick assembly line, and if it was published by my publisher, they'd have it racked in the fantasy section. <laughs> So you have the marketing limitation that puts me in the fantasy section. And when that happens, it excludes a certain number of readers um, physically because they don't go back to the fantasy section. They look for their fiction in general fiction aisles where, you know, Dean Koontz and, and all the other, Daniel Steele and, and other popular authors are, are racked. So you're physically segregated and people don't get a chance to, to look at your book and even consider it. Um, the other thing is that when I'm writing a fantasy book, in essence, I can make people think, wow, something scary could happen in this world. And sometimes I would really like to make them think, wow, something could, scary could happen in my world. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Terry Goodkind. His latest novel is Naked Empire. Thank, thank you, Rick. Thanks for having me. I've had a uh, really good time. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>